I want to ask you to take your Bibles again and open them where uh, Kevin read from a few moments ago. And I just want to, I'm not going to read the whole passage again right now, but I do want to cover, highlight a few verses we're going to talk about today. The subject matter, Jesus prays for you. And I highly encourage you this morning to find a sheet of paper, something to take notes on. You're going to need that, especially later in the message today. But for now, let me highlight verse 11 and verse 15 and 17 and 21. Jesus says there, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then down in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Father, we ask today that you would open our hearts this first Sunday of a new year and that we would understand the critical nature of these issues that Jesus prays about for his church. And Lord, that all of these issues would be an ever-growing reality in our lives. How comforting to know that Jesus prays for us. So Lord, help us to keep that connection to Him strong this year. Even as He said in John 15 that He's the vine and we're the branches. We're nothing without Him and can do nothing apart from Him. And so we are to abide in Him. Lord, may... Christ be our central focus in the one that we are about. Now, give us ears to hear this morning what your Spirit is saying to your people through this text of Scripture. And God, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross and that we would see Jesus. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Most of you are well acquainted with the Dobson family. Uh, James Dobson and his wife Shirley, for years, the founder and president of Focus on the Family Ministries. Of course, he is retired now and someone else is leading that ministry. But Shirley Dobson gives an illustration about prayer dated from 1999. She says, oftentimes, Jim was on the road traveling, and many nights she and the children were all alone in the house. And that that's something that she could have been very fearful of. But she and Jim had entrusted their family and the safekeeping of their family to God, and and they were just trusting God as he was away in his travels, that God was going to look over them. And she said, sure enough, I'd put the children to bed every night and go to sleep and sleep in great peace. However, one night at 2 a.m., she says, I woke up startled and so 
fearful. I sat up in the bed and it's like the Lord was telling me that something deeply was wrong. And I rolled out of the bed and I got down on my knees beside the bed and I said, Lord, I have no idea why I am so fearful. Is this me? Or have you awakened me in the middle of the night to pray about something? And she continued to pray for the safety of her children and her home. She said, I was able to go back to bed and go to sleep. The next morning she looked out and there were police cars all in front of her home. And she went outside to discover what was going on. And, and the babysitter, the teenage babysitter that lived across the street, ran across the street and said, Mrs. Dobson, Mrs. Dobson, did you hear what happened last night? And she said, no, I didn't. The house next door to you while the family was asleep was broken. The burglars broke in and raided that family while they were asleep. And Shirley Dobson said she asked the police, what time do, do y'all know when this happened? And the police said, yes ma'am, it was somewhere around 2 a.m. Coincidence? I don't think so. And she knew in her heart that if burglars were going to break into her home, that she knew the window on the side of the house that they would use to break in from because it was hidden from sight and protected behind a row of tall shrubs. And she and the babysitter walked around there to that side of the home and looked at the window and the screen had been bent and broken and some type of tool was used. The wood was damaged there, the base of the window. It was very apparent someone had tried to break in to her home. She says, I know that God was protecting me and my family. And that God awakened me to pray about that very situation while it was happening. Folks, we know that intercessory prayer is powerful. How comforting it is to know when someone is praying for you. And here we see that it is none other than the Lord Jesus who is praying. The passage we turn to today is the Lord's Prayer. Now I know what you're thinking. The traditional Lord's Prayer is found in Matthew chapter 6 and again in Luke 11. But as you look at those passages you will see that it is Jesus instructing his disciples in how to pray. They observed his prayer life and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. You know, they could have said, Lord, would you teach us how to walk on water? Would you teach us how to steal the storms? But they didn't ask those questions. Their question was, because they were so moved by Jesus' prayer life, Lord, will you teach us how to pray the way that you pray? 
And so in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, Jesus is talking about categories that ought to be present in our prayers. But as we turn to John 17 here, we're actually invited into communion, a communion time between the Father and the Son. Some commentators note as we enter upon John 17, we need to be like Moses there at the burning bush and we need to realize that we are standing on holy ground and perhaps we need to take our shoes off. I want you to see how Jesus prays for us. Again, the Bible assures us that he does. The Bible says that after his resurrection, when he ascended, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And at the right hand of the Father, he is our advocate before the Father. And not only is Christ our advocate and intercessor before the Father, but Paul also says in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit takes up the very same ministry of intercession. That even while we have a burden on our heart that is so deep that we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit in moments like that takes our need and presents petitions before the Father in a perfect way. And so the Son of God and the Spirit of God both are making intercession for the saints. And that ought to be deeply encouraging to you and me both. Now the first thing we notice in this prayer is how Jesus prays for himself. I'm not going to cover that aspect of the prayer this morning. That would be a sermon in and of itself. But I do just want to mention briefly what he's praying there. He prays at the beginning of the chapter that he will receive back all of his pre-incarnation glory. You see, folks, when Jesus came to this earth in flesh, he voluntarily laid aside his heavenly glory. He didn't lay aside his divinity, but in taking flesh, he laid aside the heavenly glory that he had enjoyed with the Father before the days of Bethlehem. And so now he's praying that that glory will be restored. And all you have to do to see the answer to this prayer is you could turn over to Revelation chapter 1 and see the vision of the glorified Christ that the Apostle John was allowed to see of Jesus. So that former glory was obviously restored. Now let's remember that this this New Year's. The baby Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas is also King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's coming back one day for his church. But today let's see how he prays for us. One more word of introduction. When you look at verses 2 and 3 and then again at verse 9, you'll notice that Jesus describes who he's praying for. He is praying for those who have eternal life. 
Folks, it is a reminder to us that as Jesus prays for the church, he is praying for the invisible church. He is praying for the redeemed of the Lord. In John 17, Jesus is not praying for those who are still a part of the unbelief of the world. In fact, he's not even praying for every single person in the visible church. Because not everybody in the visible church we know is a part of the body of Christ. Jesus told a parable about the wheat and the tares growing up together. The wheat symbolizing those who know him. The uh, tares those who don't. They grow up together until the end of the age when he says the angels will make the separation. Separating the sheep from the goats. Jesus also talked to a church man. Nicodemus, a religious church man there at the temple, one of the leaders, and he told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he'll not see the kingdom of heaven. Being a church member in and of itself, even being baptized in and of itself, does not mean that you're a child of God. You have to be saved. You have to be born again. And as we go into 2021, if you don't have that assurance in your heart that you're born again, myself or any of the pastoral staff members would love to sit down and speak with you. Jesus is here praying for those who are part of his family. And in this prayer, we see what Jesus most wants for his children in the time period between his first advent and his second advent. Now folks, think about that. That ought to make all of us sit up and take notice. These are issues that Jesus is praying about will be a reality in your life and my life between his first advent and his second advent. It may not be an exhaustive list, but it is certainly a foundational list of what Jesus desires for us. And so what's first? First of all, in verse 11, I want you to notice he prays that we will be a kept people. And when you read the verses that follow, your translation may say a guarded people or a protected people or the word kept. And when you read the following verses from verse 11, it seems that the word kept in this sense is used that we would endure. Because he's setting up a contrast the way His true disciples continued and the way Judas did not. And so he seems to be talking here about kept in the sense that that we would be kept moving forward in the faith and faithful to the very end. You see in verse 15 he's going to use the same word in a very different sense. In the sense that we would be kept from the evil one. But here he seems to be praying that we would be a kept people, that we would persevere to the end by the Father's power. A prayer that we would be faithful to the end. Folks, if you were to look back at John 15, 
you would see that Christ realizes the Christian life is sometimes going to be very difficult. We're going to be hated by the world because we're not of the world. We're going to be opposed and attacked by the world. And there may be times that you ask, is it all really worth it or not? But know this, God wants you to endure to the end. God wants you to persevere. God is not simply concerned about a good start. He is concerned about a good finish. It is God's intention that for your entire life you grow in your Christian faith and you bring glory to Him and you remain as His servant. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 through 10. Paul says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in Him you've been made complete and He is the head over all rule and authority. What's Paul's message there? He's simply, essentially the same. That we would be kept, that we would endure, that we would persevere. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Being built up and established in your faith and guarded. Paul's saying that again, that essentially the same thing. Don't let anything or anyone cheat you out of what you have in Christ. There are the philosophies of men that can try to rob your devotion away from Christ. There are the traditions of men, Paul says in Colossians 2, that can rob you of Christ. You know, in the church we can even have traditions and some of them are very good because they remind us of who Christ is and what He's done for us. So some traditions are good. But some traditions can become an idol in and of themselves. And then they're bad. But we need to remain in Christ because all the fullness of deity dwells in Him and in Him we've been made complete. And so don't accept any cheap substitutes that we might have for Jesus Christ. So what Jesus is praying in this first petition is that we would endure to the end. You know, I think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul said, I'm, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. Jesus is praying for your Christian testimony that you and I will get to the end of our lives and our testimony will be kept pure and that we will be found faithful. Folks, what a powerful petition this is. 
Because when you think about it, as we walk through this world, there's plenty of stuff that can get in the way and, and hinder us. Think of all the pressures that families have on them these days. Pressures that would draw you away from Christ, draw you away from the body of Christ. And then what ends up happening is that your Christian life ends up suffering. Folks, we were never intended to exist separately from one another. Lone Ranger Christians. Lone Ranger Christians become disobedient Christians and then they become cold Christians. I am yet to see an exception to that. Jesus prays that you and I will keep our focus, that we'll be kept in the faith and in the Father's name, and that we will endure to the very end. And aren't you so glad that that is the Father's good pleasure to do that? Somebody once said, do you believe in the perseverance of the saints? In other words, once saved, always saved. And the person said, yes, I believe in the uh, perseverance of the saints because I believe in the preservation of the Father. The Father keeps those who are His. And so Jesus is essentially praying that the Father will do what He delights to do. And you know, that's the greatest assurance we can have in prayer, isn't it? When we're praying scriptural principles back to God, principles that God has given to us, when we turn scripture around and pray it back to God, that's some of the most powerful praying we will ever do. So again, I want you to know this, in 2021, Jesus is praying for you and I that we will be kept, that we will endure to the very end and bring glory to Him in all that we do. Second petition I want you to see, He prays that we would be a protected people. In verse 15, He says there, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Same word here, kept, but used here, at least in, the, in some versions, the word protected. Emphasizing that there is someone that we need to be protected from. We have an enemy. Folks, I want you to realize what we are not to be protected from. We are not to be protected from the presence of trials because James 1 and 1 Peter 1, both of those texts tell us that it's God's purpose to bring trials and tribulations into our lives to develop endurance and character in us. It may be a hard way to go about it from our perspective, but it's what God uses. And so Jesus is not asking that God would protect you from any hardship or trials that would ever enter into your life. Because again, He purposes to use those things. Likewise, we're not to be protected from the world in the sense that we are removed from the world. Jesus says here, Father, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. 
You see, folks, it's in the world where we have our ministry. This is where we have our influence. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that we're the salt of the earth and light of the world. From the moment you and I are saved, it is God's plan to use us to influence a dark and a corrupt world and to introduce them to Jesus Christ. And so, again, he's not asking that the Father would take us out of the world. I know it's an old cliche, but it's true. We're to be in the world. We're just not to be of the world. Well, if we're not to be protected in the sense of being removed from the world, if we're not to be protected in the sense of not ever facing any kind of trials or tribulations, what are we to be protected from? He tells us here, we are to be protected from the evil one. The Bible says we have an enemy, and you and I need to remember that. We have an enemy, and we need to be alert to his schemes and his methods. He deceived Adam and Eve into believing that God's word did not matter. He began by eroding Eve's confidence in what God had said. And then he convinced them that they could break the commands of God and get away with it without any consequence. Folks, isn't that the same thing we see happening in the world today? Whether it has to do with life itself, with marriage, or with the church... Satan tries to convince us that God's word really doesn't matter when it comes to the issues of life. Folks, we have God's commandments given for our good. But one thing you can count on seeing in the world, in society we are breaking every single one of them and we think we're going to get away with it and we won't. It's like God said to Israel through Hosea the prophet, you're sowing to the wind and you're going to reap the whirlwind. Who's behind this? Satan is behind this. He paints God's commands out to be something horrible, something bad, something restrictive. The psalmist said just the opposite. The commands of God are sweet like honey. They give life, they give understanding, and they give abundance. But you know, Satan comes along and he's a liar and he's the father of lies. In John 10.10, Jesus said of him, The thief cometh only to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan is the thief that Jesus was referring to. You were made for God. But Satan wants to steal your heart away from a relationship to God and he wants to ultimately destroy your life. And so what's Jesus asking here? He's saying, Father, you know those who are mine, you've given them to me. And I in turn am asking you that you would guard them and watch over them and protect them from the evil one. And all of his devices. Folks, is there some area of your life where you've begun to compromise God's word? You know what you need to do? You need to resist Satan. Draw near to God and the Bible says he will draw near to you. Don't allow Satan to lie to you and destroy your life. 
We look at the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness and we see Satan's strategies. He tried to get Jesus to use everything in his life for his own personal advantage. He said to Jesus, turn these stones into bread. In other words, use your power and what's around you for your personal benefit, Jesus. Don't live for God. Just satisfy your earthly appetites. You've got the power to be able to do so. And then what did he say to Jesus? Jesus, bow down to me and I'll give you what you need. In fact, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. In other words, Jesus, take shortcuts in life. Don't do things God's way. Don't go the way of the cross. Don't listen to God. That can be hard and that can be drawn out. Get what you want out of life right now. Go for the gusto. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Be gone, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Satan appeals to our human pride. 1 John 2 points that out. John refers to the pride of life. Somebody thinks, I'm not so bad, I'm a good person. God ought to let me into heaven. Who does that preacher think he is calling me a sinner? I don't need Christ, I don't need anybody else. What's that? That's human pride that Satan appeals to. John referred also to the lust of the eyes. We want everything that appears good to us, but everything that appears good to us is not good. John also refers to the lust of the flesh. We want to live for the present to please the flesh and the bodily appetites. But what a tragic mistake that is. Jesus is praying that you and I will be protected from all of these schemes of the enemy. Folks, we need to be alert to the schemes of the enemy and how he tries to attack even Christians. Don't kid yourself that he doesn't attack. He is as a roaring lion seeking someone whom he may devour. So be alert to his schemes and know that Jesus is is praying for you to be able to stand strong and be protected from all the schemes of the evil one. In verse 17, Jesus thirdly prays that we will be a sanctified people. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, folks, follow me here. Sanctification is used two ways in the Bible. There is an immediate sense that it's used, and there is a progressive sense that it is used. The immediate sense of sanctification begins at conversion. We are set apart for God. This happens... When God saves a person, God calls you out of this world. As Paul said to the Colossians, he picks us up out of the kingdom of darkness and he sits, sets us down in the kingdom of his own beloved son. God sanctifies us. He sets us apart as his family, his children. And we are to be holy. 
And we are to be about his business. But sanctification is also used in the Bible in the progressive sense. It refers to our growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. We are to be growing. We are to become practically what God has already made us positionally. We are to be a holy people. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You're to glorify God in your body. And so every day my attitude ought to be, okay God, I'm your vessel today. You're the potter, I'm the clay. I'm the servant, you're the master. I'm trusting you to lead me. Here I am, what do you want me to do? And that's how we're to live as the church. He's the head of the body. We are to be a sanctified people. We are to be a different people, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. In Romans 13, Paul says, And this do, knowing the time, that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness, and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. What's the Bible talking about there? Sanctification. We were sanctified, set apart at our conversion, and we are to continue growing in that. Growing in God's purposes for our lives. Jesus says, Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them in the truth. And then notice what he says, your word is truth. So how does this process of sanctification happen? Through the Word of God. Let me give you some tests that you can apply to yourself, whether this is happening or not. First of all, number one, is God's Word more and more becoming my compass for how I live? Because it's God's desire that His Spirit takes His Word, His Spirit takes His Word and He uses that in your life to conform you to the image of Christ and to grow you. Folks, God doesn't just give us His Word to make us feel good. He gives us His Word to change us and transform us. Is that happening in your life? Is the Word of God changing your life? You see, if I'm a growing Christian, being sanctified in God's truth, I'm going to be daily in the Word of God and in my, on my knees praying about the Word of God that I'm reading, that God, what I'm reading here, would you bring this to pass in my life? Would you do this in me, what you're talking about here? If I'm not growing through the word like that, it's just going in one ear and out the other. I'm a hearer of the word, but not a doer. So is the word of God more and more becoming your compass? Secondly, is my focus becoming more and more on the things of God? 
You know, it's true. I still got to live in this world and pay my mortgage and, and help my kids through life. But more and more is my life becoming about the things of God. If I'm a growing Christian, then my life ought to be less and less about me. And it ought to be more and more about Christ. Number three, am I loving God's people more? Paul said to the Corinthians that their divisions with one another, their grumbling, their slanders, their backbiting was signs that they weren't growing. They weren't being sanctified in the truth. When you can look at people and see them the way Christ sees them and love them and minister to them, not expecting anything in return from them, then that's a sign that you're growing in that respect. Fourth, am I using my gifts to serve the body of Christ? If you're growing in Christ, you're going to not just love Jesus, you're going to love that which Jesus loves. He loves his bride. You're going to want to be discovering your gifts and how you can use your gifts to be a blessing to others in the church. If you're not being sanctified and not growing in this regard, then you're going to still think church is all about you. And everybody's supposed to be looking after me. Fifth, do I want others to know the Jesus that I have met? If you're a Christian, it's inevitable that you'll have a growing burden for the lost and you'll want to do something about it. If you know that there are millions of lost people in the world and you really don't care, you could care less just so long as you've got your fire insurance policy, then that's a sure indication you're not growing in Christ-likeness. Remember, Jesus looked at the lost. He looked out over Jerusalem on one occasion and he wept over them. Do we weep over those who are lost and don't know Christ? Folks, are these things happening? These things are a sign that verse 17 is happening in our lives. And again, the vehicle God uses is His Word. His Spirit uses His Word to accomplish this. And one last thing, in verses 20 to 23, Jesus prays that we will be a unified people. He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so he's talking about Christians down through the ages, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Folks, I want you to think about this miracle called the church. Are we one because we all look the same, comb our hair the same, or wear the same things? No. You think about our diversity. White collar, blue collar, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, English speaking, non-English speaking, different races, different cultures. The early church was a great example of that kind of diversity. Jesus went out and started reaching Samaritans. Boy, that was a tough pill for them to swallow, wasn't it? 
And then in Acts 10 and beyond, the early church, they started going out and reaching Gentiles. Boy, that was a tough pill to swallow too. When Peter went to Cornelius' house, when he got back to the church at Antioch, they jumped all over Simon Peter. How dare you go to the home of a Gentile? And so Peter had to recount how God had appeared to him in that vision and told him to go to Cornelius and then how he witnessed the Holy Spirit come on the Gentiles too. And they stood back and they said, well, I guess it's God's plan to include Gentiles in his church too. It was a tough lesson for them to have to learn. So we're not diverse because we're all the same in that sense. I mean, we're not unified. We're not, uni- we're not to be unified because we all look the same, come from the same area, speak the same language. We're also not unified uh, because we all have the same gift. Again, we have different gifts. What is our unity? Our unity is in Christ. And the basic principles and doctrines of our Christian faith. St. Augustine said in the 4th century, In essentials let there be unity, in non-essentials charity. Folks, we are to be unified the essential doctrines in the Bible. That men and women are lost outside of Christ. There's only one way of salvation and His name is Jesus. The Bible's the inspired Word of God. Holy and inerrant and infallible. Jesus is coming back one day for His church. Those those broad essentials, we agree in that. But I want to tell you, don't expect the members of your community group or your small groups, whatever groups you may be in or ministries you're in in the church, don't expect that everybody is going to agree on non-essentials. Because we're not. Unity and essentials, charity and non-essentials. You know, it's long been said, you put two Baptists in a room, you've got at least three opinions. And you go back even in our Southern Baptist history to our foundations and look at the multiple avenues or creeks of Baptists flowing into the river called Southern Baptist and all the differences. And you'll see how from the beginning we've not always agreed on non-essentials, but we've agreed on the essentials. I know for a fact that when it comes to end time views... We've got six different views represented here at Pitts Baptist Church. Six different views. But you know what we all agree on? Jesus is coming back for His bride. Everybody's going to face the judgment. And some will be in heaven for all of eternity. And some will be in hell for all of eternity. We all believe that. Even though we may disagree on some of the minor details about the order of things. Jesus prayed for unity in the church. The psalmist said how good and pleasant it is when believers dwell together in unity. Now why do I really want to hammer on that one? Because of the year that we've just come out of. 
I have never seen the world so divided. And I'm reading blogs by pastors and, and listening to messages by pastors. And they're even talking about churches across the nation. And they're saying, we've never seen the church so divided over things. But what did Jesus say and what did he pray for? That we would be one and that by our unity in the Lord, the world will believe that we are His disciples. Folks, we are to love one another and be unified. Again, rallying around these critical, essential things in the Word of God. And rallying around our mission. Jesus said we're to go into all the world baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. So our mission, our common mission is also what is to unify us. Can I ask you all this division you're seeing on social media for goodness sakes don't bring that into the church. Keep that junk out of the church. Jesus prays that we will be unified. And so that also means that if you are at odds with anyone, the scripture says, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So you need to go to somebody and say, you know what? I've sinned against you. Or I've got some problem with you. And sit down and pray together. And for the sake of God's glory, work it out for the good of the church. Now as we close, are you persevering in your faith? Jesus prayed that you would be kept. That you would finish well. Given your current progress, if your current progress in the faith is any indication, will you finish well? Maybe your prayer this morning needs to be, Lord, I know, I know it is your desire that I would be kept in the sense of enduring in the faith. And so God, by your strength and by the power of your spirit, Get me back on course. Does that need to be your prayer? Are you being attacked by the evil one? He will attack your marriage, your home, everything about you if you're a believer. He wants to destroy you and your testimony for Jesus. Is there some area where you know He's working in your life? You need to resist Him and get brothers and sisters around you in the Lord praying for you. Are you allowing your life to be sanctified? Is the Word of God transforming your life? Bible reading guides are a dime a dozen on the internet. Find one that fits your schedule. And by all means, this year, be reading through the Bible and read through it prayerfully. What you read, say, God, do this in my life. Again, it's 
his word. His spirit takes his word and uses that to sanctify us. You've got to be in his word. Are you one with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there somebody you need to get right with? Father, we thank you for this prayer that we see that Jesus prays for us. Help us to understand the importance of this. When we think of the Son of God praying this for His people, it ought to make us sit up and take notice. And God, as far as it is humanly possible, and through your power, giving us your supernatural strength, I pray that every one of these petitions that he prayed for his people would be a reality in us. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Would you stand?